This episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by HVMN's Ketone IQ. Welcome back to Cyclist Magazine Podcast. This week's guest is Dr. Lat Monsoor, and we're going to talk all things ketones. This week's show is brought to you in association with HVMN Ketone IQ. James, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me back, Anthony. Um, tell you what, you can't see what I can see, but for the first time in what feels like days, it's actually sunny here because we've had some serious biblical rain and I'm sat here, my jeans are wet, and my socks are wet, and after this I need to go and get changed because I've just ridden my bike. And yeah, there's a lot of puddles. The London sewage system, man, that needs some serious uh, restitution. I spent some time over in London uh, a couple of weeks ago. We finally got to meet in person, and I had the privilege of riding around London on those Lion bikes, which are little bit of a death trap, but also a little bit of an exhilarating experience. At low speeds, they have such a kick off them that you don't anticipate, especially if you had a couple of drinks, although I wouldn't advocate drinking and cycling. It's a bad move. <laughs> and that is absolutely, that was absolutely not what you were doing. Cause, and also your face is fine. So however it went for you, it couldn't have been that bad. But yeah, those, those things are sort of, it's weird, isn't it? So uh, if anyone's not familiar, Lime Bikes, basically part of Uber, um, and it's a, like an e-bike that you can, dockless e-bike, pick it up anywhere. And the sorts of people that are like, likely to jump on those sorts of things probably don't have helmets, probably don't ride bicycles very much. I find it really odd. It's really setting people up for a serious fall. And also, when you're on them, I don't know about listeners that are from London, they obviously have a better grasp of London geography than me, but I have to have Google Maps on my phone in one hand. So you're on the electric e-bike, maybe with some drinks, maybe not with some drinks, with one hand on the bars, trying to navigate, look where you're going, and also kind of use the London potholes as like a braille to guide you to your destination. (laughs) I don't know. Not sure if London potholes have ever been described as braille, but yeah, I can, I can, I can see how that works. But okay, here's a question for you, uh, Mister. I used to be a, a lawyer. What's what's the deal? If you got pulled over in Ireland, cycling a bike, inebriated, is there a punishment, and what would that punishment be? By, you know, by law. I don't know, but I'm going. <laughs> I don't know, but what I do know is I was in Bali many years ago, and I was coming out of a restaurant and I was on a date, had a lot of wine and I'd driven there on a moped and there was a police officer outside and I was asking the police officer, like, you know, what's the drink driving rules in Bali? And he's like, oh no, there's no drink driving rules. Jump on the bike if you want. Uh, If you're too drunk, you'll just die. And Darwin kind of figured out the drink driving rules. (laughs) (laughs) And all of the money that they've saved on breathalyzer equipment and court cases as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm not necessarily prescribing a state that allows its people to die, but at the same time, there's a a wonderful common sense to that. It's definitely at the far end of that sort of snowflake spectrum. Oh yeah, it really is. Kids don't, don't, don't cycle. Don't cycle and drink. Over here, there is a law uh, called um, cycling furiously, which is illegal. So you're not allowed to cycle furiously, which is what, how, one of the ways they get you done for cycling on a pavement because you can kind of get away with it to a degree. And obviously a kid's not going to get told off for cycling on the pavement. But if you're cycling fast on the pavement, you're kind of cycling furiously and that is a crime. Cycling furiously seems like more of a mental state than a physical act. It seems like you've had a fight with the missus and you're cycling to the pub. Like you're cycling a perfect straight line, perfectly lucid, but you're just carrying this mental anguish and turmoil, which 
Yeah, no, it does. And also it feels like how most people are probably cycling in, particularly in London anyway, there is a cycling, cycling furiously, aka cycling with a chip on your shoulder. But the same cuts both ways for motorists as well. Anyway, we'll try and leave, we'll leave the politics there. But I just wanted to ask you one more question um, as a kind of, as a leading light in sports science and coaching. Do you go in for sports massage? Because I've just, I had one yesterday and I'm not entirely sure if my shoulders are feeling better or if there's like some serious deep tissue damage there. And if that, if that is actually any good for me, it feels like I've just done um, 10, sets of, uh, 10 sets of shoulder presses. I think there's, there's a really interesting school of thought on sports massage, on, you know, these compression aero boots, anything like this that enhance your performance. I've chatted to a bunch of world tour physios over on my podcast. And the the best or the statement or sentiment that made the most sense to me was from Scott Murphy, who's the physio for bike exchange. And he said, if an athlete believes it makes them feel better, it makes them feel better because that then feeds into their performance the next day. But he also touched on something which I think is brilliant and we can use it as uh, sort of a template for other areas of our life. This idea of habit stacking. If you're getting a sports massage, you're typically not going to pick up six beers on the way home from that sports massage. You're typically going to yeah. be the sort of person who hydrates. You're going to be the sort of person that make better meal choices. You know, if you're sitting in a pair of compression boots on the couch, you're not going to be sitting with the compression boots on eating a 16-inch pizza. So you end up starting to habit stack. You make better decisions around your nutrition, about your hydration, around your training. I think that's the real benefit of starting to build this ecosystem of, you know, ancillary sporting performance recovery methods in the backgrounds it's what the better choices it makes you make in other parts of your life yeah no i can see that at the same time uh 16 inch pizzas are much more gratifying and significantly cheaper than an hour doing sports massage but you know you just remind me of what just we'll leave it on this last note but flying in the face of that is thomas de Gent, who apparently eschewed sports massage his entire career and never had one can you believe that thomas de Gent does what he wants though he's you know, it takes a day in the break and then a day in the groupetto. We don't all have that luxury. You're four gas every day. <laughs> <laughs> Cyclist Mag doesn't run without you. You need to be in the break every day. Oh, cheers. Wow, that is, that's such a lovely thing to say. Right, okay, on with the interview. Now I've, now I've been sufficiently pumped up for the rest of the day. So it's, uh, it's Dr. Lat Mansour. Um, and yeah, he is, he's a proper doctor. So he's going to tell us some proper doctor things. So you might want to listen up. Um, and you might want to probably like look up a few terms because we had to. Because he's yeah he's deep he's deep in the world of ketones. Welcome to the podcast, Doctor Lat Mansour. Doctor Lat, welcome to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Lat. To start out, I was just thinking about the the unknown I kind of have in the journey as to how you got there. And for me, I'm so passionate about the cycling industry. And if I circle back and go, well, why am I so passionate about that? It's growing up, my dad was quite overweight. He had an accident when he was in his 30s and he lost his toe and he put on a lot of weight. And I was always super passionate about health since then because I grew up seeing a lot of lifestyle limitations that he had, stuff he couldn't do with me and my sister. So I think that subconsciously laid a seed for me in my life to be a passionate advocate for cycling. 
What do I need to know about your background to understand your kind of career path to where you've arrived at today? Sure. It's it's a bit of a of a long story, it's a roundabout path that I went through. Um I sort of grew up with a very high prevalence of diabetes and cardiovascular disease on both my mom and my dad's side. My dad's more on the cardiovascular disease and my mom more on the on the diabetes. And and a lot of my relatives are obese or or overweight overweight. And I've been always, you know, growing up as an overweight kid until I was in my undergrad in the University of Nottingham um, in the UK, um, where I started exercising for the first time in my life that I actually voluntarily exercising without, you know, actually being forced to like in physical, uh, physical education classes. So then I lost about 20 kilos um, or 45 pounds. I don't know what that is in stones, but I lost all those weight and then I started learning more about physiology um, and metabolism. And I realized that what I was born with and what I saw growing up, it doesn't necessarily need to be my fate growing old. So that was when I, I you know, learned about you know, strength training, resistant training, as well as cardiovascular um, sort of fitness, aerobic fitness. And it took me a long time to actually got over the fear of even gaining muscle mass or gaining mass in general, because I was so afraid of getting back to that old self where I was overweight. So for the longest time, I was you know, calorie restricting. I was overcompensating with, with cardio. And, and then you know, from, from undergrad, I did my master's in biotechnology in New York. And then from then on, um, I moved on to doing a PhD in physiology, anatomy, and genetics, specializing in cardiovascular disease and diabetes, um, ironically, because of my family background as well. And that was in the University of Oxford. And I've always been sort of specialized in the chronic disease area, um, not until I joined HVMN in 2019, where I focus more on athletic performance because at that time, the first ketone ester drink that HVMN brought to the market was really targeted to the, the elite athletes uh, population to really give that, that little edge that these athletes need in order to go faster, go further, recover faster and all of that. So then I realized, do you know what? The chronic disease as well as the performance, they are all on the same spectrum. One is just a dysfunctional side of things and then the other is hyper-performance side of things. But they are essentially human health and fitness, right? So if you look after yourself well and you push yourself well and you eat well and you train well, you move towards one end, which is the performance end. Whereas if you start neglecting your health, your, your, your lifestyle, you move towards the other end, which is the dysfunctional side where you develop risk of chronic disease. So now I'm marrying both of these experience and knowledge around uh, other studies and focus on ketone metabolism and how can exogenous ketone play a role, not even just exogenous, even endogenous ketone via intermittent fasting or ketogenic diet play a role in mitigating the risk of chronic disease as much as possible, but also on the other end, how do we use it as a tool to optimize performance? Hope that covers the background. <laughs> Absolutely. So to bring us up to where you are now, um, 
your research lead um, at HVMN, which I'm going to struggle to say. So if I get the M and the N the wrong way around, <laughs> please, please forgive me. But that's uh, Health via Modern Nutrition, right? Which is quite a kind of prosaic title and, and just describes what you're saying. It's not just for elite athletes. Um, you know, it's twinning basically what we eat, how we are in our bodies with our overall kind of like prognosis for not dying really early. But there's a lot in there which we don't understand. So I'm going to throw quite a few terms at you now that I'd kind of like to just have defined and trying to sort of like build a picture of basically what, you know, what ketones are um, and what they are doing for us. Because from Anthony and I's perspective, for the last couple of years, ketones has existed particularly in the professional peloton um, as this kind of panacea almost talked about in a kind of slightly hush-hush, could be illegal, are they taking it, are they not kind of way. And as far as we know, there are some teams that take it, there are some teams that don't. There's lots of conjecture um, around the kind of literature, you know, around the efficacy of it. But before all that, I'm just kind of confused. What is the difference between ketones and what I used, you know, had come across before, which is the keto diet, which I kind of understood to be effectively you eat loads of meat and you have no carbs. Right. So, okay, let's start with that then. Um, so ketones in and of itself is a molecule that is similar to glucose or protein or fat. It produces energy, right? So if you think about ketones, it's just another fuel, same as glucose, you know, how you would supplement yourself to provide energy to your body. Now, keto diet is one of many ways to actually produce those ketones inside your body. So keto diet is when you have high fat content, about 70 to 75% of your daily calories come from fat, about 20% come from protein, and about 5% come from glucose or carbs. When that happens, your body basically tells you know, the, the rest of the organs or tell the liver to actually break down fat um, to form ketones. Because ultimately, your body needs energy. So if it's not getting energy from glucose, it needs to get it from somewhere. And people might ask, oh, there's fat. Obviously, fat has a very high amount of energy being stored. And why can't they just burn fat? And they do. They do burn fat. However, for organs like brain, you have the blood-brain barrier where fat is too big of a molecule to pass through the blood-brain barrier. And therefore, you need to convert the fat into ketones first, which is a smaller molecule. And that form is called beta-hydroxybutyrate. It has uh, four carbons in it instead of you know, 18, 20 like, saturated fat, for example. And that passes that barrier and arrives at the brain and being metabolized for energy. Now, this is especially important evolutionarily speaking, because you know back in the days we don't have access to refined carbs, we don't have access to um, a lot of these you know additional fuel that we're just sitting on, and we don't have nine to five sitting jobs where we actually have to go out and hunt. We have a lot of physical activity. We Most of the time, we go through fasting period because we do not have storage system where we have food that we can store. Therefore, we can only go out to hunt whenever we're hungry. So in that sense, our body is sort of evolved to be able to cope with that situation, which is ketones. And if you look at it uh, from an infant point of view as well, infants have really high keto metabolism because most of their diet is uh, breast milk 
and milk in general have very high fat content. Um, and that it really helps with you know the brain development as well. Um, and we have seen in adults where studies looked at functional MRI where you give them either keto diet for a week or a exogenous ketones for uh, just one dose, they saw an increase in interaction between brain region and they call it brain network stability. And that stability gets decreased as we age. And that is also a sign of cognitive impairment. So that's ketone in general. And then you have keto diet versus exogenous ketones. So keto diet is one way to, to achieve that, to produce your own ketones in your liver. Intermittent fasting is another, another method. So as long as your body is low in carbs and low in glycogen and low in insulin, now, insulin is very key here as well because as soon as insulin spikes up, it signals the liver to stop producing ketones because it says your body has enough substrate or fuel so you don't need to produce any ketones. Exogenous ketones has only been existing for the past... I mean, in fact, the first exogenous ketone that came out was by HVMN in 2017 and that was a ketone ester. Essentially, a ketone in a bottle it is a biohacking sort of approach to this where you can bypass the diet, you can bypass the fasting and put yourself in ketosis. Ketosis means your blood BHB, your blood dehydroxybutyrate level is higher than 0.5 millimolar. So most of the time you have to fast you know, quite a bit in order for your body, depending on how keto adapted you are, to reach that level. But then, you know, it sort of limits you as to what you can eat, what you can do, um, and you have to follow the whole lifestyle. But then when exogenous ketone came out via this research from DARPA, uh, which is from the Department of Defense in the US, they are essentially looking for a super fuel for military. How can this fuel help military to perform better in long and demanding missions? And then they thought of this, this system of a hybrid um, fuel system where you still have glucose in your body and you can access to your glycogen. But on top of that, you're adding ketones. But we know that physiologically, you can't achieve that without depleting your glycogen first. So drinking a bottle of ketones spike your ketone levels acutely for a good few hours. And that is what giving that, that sort of benefit, that hybrid dual system. But then over time, we because of the access accessibility of these exogenous ketones, we are seeing way more research that goes beyond um, exercise and performance. And it started to go into, you know, say, cognitive impairment, um, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, all of these different therapeutic areas, because essentially it's just a fuel that provides energy more efficiently than glucose. But on top of that, it is also said to have signaling effect where it directly affects um, transcription in the DNA via beta-hydroxybutyrylation um, where it's it sort of loosening up that sort of histone binding the DNA and help with um, transcription, translation and you know downwards uh, cascade of event to help with um, in general like wellness, health as well as performance. Let's just jump in and unpack some of that. I think it's uh, interesting evolution, the idea of exogenous ketones, because it's probably only a couple of hundred years since we first had exogenous carbohydrates in the form of sugar. When it's you know so mainstream now, I wonder, will we see this as something that's very mainstream years from now? But that's just a general musing. I'm wondering if you could just help me understand 
where do ketones sit in the ecosystem of fueling, even by way of an analogy? If I think about our normal recognized fuel systems like fats, carbohydrates, I've always thought of fats as maybe like a coal, something that's slower burning, burns for long, but at quite a low intensity. And carbohydrates, maybe like a wood on the fire that burns a little bit brighter, but it's easier to catch fire. What type of fueling will we use ketones for? I think um, ketones, they do get oxidized quite quickly. So in studies, they did measure oxidation rates of ketones. And as soon as you take them, um, they do get um, used quite quickly. And you do feel the effect on top of that as well. You feel the effect um, subjectively in terms of mental clarity and focus. And um, that is when we know that, you know, you are in ketosis or that it's kicking in, you know. Um, And it's a very interesting concept as well, what you brought up about our access to exogenous carbs only, you know, a few centuries old. Um, And I think from right now with all the studies that have gone out and published showing the benefits of ketones in different therapeutic areas, I do hope that it will eventually be a, a staple of people for people to to actually increase their ketones uh, in their body, regardless whether they are on ketogenic diet lifestyle or fasting lifestyle, like even if they're on normal lifestyle, to have some a bit of ketones is better than none from what the studies have shown. However, um, we do know that we need to improve the taste first because the reason why carbs, you know, exogenous carbs are so prevalent is because we found a way to industrialize them and make them hyper palatable. And to a certain extent now, we need to cut back because it's over um, consumed. Yeah, that to me is an interesting kind of philosophical point, which is the exogenous um, carbs, which you just identified, are the very same ones, you know, that ostensibly, at least in the UK, probably in the States as well, governments are trying to kind of tax um, because they are at the root cause of a massive, you know, an endemic of obesity, and that has all kinds of knock-on effects. And once upon a time, we didn't have them. And once upon a time, I've been led to believe um, through, you know, Wikipedia and that, that, you know, obesity wasn't so much of an issue. Death by saber-toothed tiger, maybe. But <laughs> obesity was not something that your average human being suffered from because we were just too busy to get fat. Whereas now, we're not only quite you know we have access to these things but we're also you know we as you say nine to five sedentary lifestyle is there a worry therefore that if you introduce something else like a ketone ester that you're effectively papering over a crack and creating another problem in the long term when suddenly we all get addicted to ketones well two points there one you're right in terms of ketones is also calories right so so one gram of ketone has about seven calories, six to seven calories. So if you consume a lot of carbs, a lot of fat, and on top of that ketones, it doesn't make you healthier. Just because it is not a drug, right? It's a food product that has a drug-like property. But, you know, obviously you still need to go through that sort of healthy lifestyle. Having said that though, first of all, ketone doesn't, doesn't taste good. So I don't foresee people over-consuming it um, right now. Most importantly, University of British Columbia from Canada, they've published three papers so far, one in healthy adults, two in obese individuals, and third one in diabetic individuals. All three groups, they saw a decrease in blood sugar after taking in exogenous ketones after food. So this is huge because you are actually lowering the blood glucose, especially for the obese and diabetic um, population, 
where you get a constant elevation of blood glucose and therefore constant elevation of insulin and therefore constant elevation of inflammatory responses that increases the risk of the other uh, diseases, you know, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, and all of that, ketones can acutely decrease that. Now, we have not seen a change in insulin. We have seen the decrease in blood glucose. But obviously, the decrease in blood glucose is also reflected by how much the insulin is going to spike. So in that sense, I think it's almost like a remedy or a replacement of drugs like metformin, which is supposed to combat diabetes and blood glucose uh, increase. So not necessarily covering the crack, um, and I think in terms of addiction, until we get to that point where it is hyperpalatable, I think the addiction to sugar, it's, it's exactly that. It's the relationship with food, the relationship with sugar, where it gives you the dopamine spike and it teaches you from a very young age that this is given to you as a reward. This is given to you to celebrate a good occasion and you you know, over decades of experience, relate sweet food, relate cakes and ice creams to these occasions and your brain is wired that way and you need to almost retrain them. Whereas if we start educating people to, to see ketone as a type of fuel that you don't need to overconsume to make yourself feel better or make yourself go faster, but just consume the right amount so that you are in that Goldilocks zone where you are optimally purposed for either exercise or for health. We hear about ketones in the pro peloton, but what are they? According to experts at HVMN, ketones are a natural source of fuel for your body. Studies show that ketones are 28% more efficient than glucose, making them a super efficient fuel source for your long rides and races. These benefits led HVMN to create Ketone IQ, which is a drinkable ketone designed to support energy, focus, and endurance. It's developed alongside the US military, and Ketone IQ is one of the most powerful ketone supplements on the market. It's designed to elevate your ketone levels for up to four hours, which is much longer than other products. Plus, it's caffeine-free, it's compliant with the World Anti-Doping Agency guidelines, and that's a major win for athletes. Ketone IQ shots are the best way to get your ketones on the go. What I love about them is they're portable and they fit so perfectly and neatly in my jersey pocket during a ride. So visit hvmn.com and use promo code cyclist at the checkout to save 20%. And to learn more about achieving your ultimate metabolic potential, subscribe to HVMN's podcast Health via Modern Nutrition, which is hosted by Dr. Lat Mansour. That's on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube. So visit hvmn.com and use the promo code cyclist at the checkout to save 20%. To dive into the kind of performance end of it, because I know so many of our listeners are going to be fascinated about that. James alluded to the fact at the start that it's ketones is a word that's almost whispered in corners in the World Tour, and we've heard a lot of uh, World Tour teams maybe on them, some have banned them, some aren't allowing it. But I'm always cautious of that correlation causation at World Tour. The guys at World Tour are fast bike riders, and they happen to take ketones. They're not World Tour riders because they're taking ketones, and I think we can confuse that a lot. And 
I realized that the proponents of the keto diet, they always point to the fact that we spare a lot more fat during exercise when we have external ketones. But that's not necessarily the goal of a bike race. It's not the person at the end of the race who has spared the most fat wins. It's the person who crosses the line fast. And I haven't been able to, you know, you'll know the data better than I have, but I haven't been able to put my fingers on those studies that definitively say you're going to be a faster bike rider on this. You're correct. You're correct. Um, It is very, um, I mean, if you just look at it from a metabolic point of view, glucose will always be king when it comes to aerobic exercise, when it comes to really fast, explosive movements um, or exercise. Because glycolysis happens very quickly and it can happen independent of oxygen, right? So aerobic exercise, when you, you, you're going high explosive, um, high intensity sort of exercise, you are putting yourself in a very you know, hypoxic mo- moment uh, for your muscles and, and glycolysis provide the ATP for it. So having said that, you know, the understanding is that ketones may not be beneficial when it comes to that area of performance. However, when you talk about bike rides um, like Tour de France and all that, there's a lot of intermittent sort of areas as well as the the sort of long distance. And I think where ketone stands out here is the ability to spare glycogen. So these cyclists may not be in ketogenic diet and therefore it's not about like fat sparing, but it's glycogen sparing. So they already have carbs and glycogen in their bodies and studies have shown that taking exogenous ketones does spare your glycogen quite a bit. So that provides that extra fuel for you to go further. Now, does the ketone in and of itself provide the energy, the explosive energy you need to finish the finishing line faster? That we have not seen yet in studies. The studies I did find that looked uh, quite interesting were largely focused around recovery. And I see a lot of potential in that area. Do you want to talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. Um, I myself, I'm using it for recovery. Um, I'm not an endurance athlete by any means. I uh, Most of my exercise is, is weightlifting. Um, and I do inter, uh, high intensity interval training as cardio at the end of my weightlifting sessions. But in general, I do find my sleep quality and my recovery better when I use it as recovery. So um, I think the most famous paper was via uh, Puff and Haspel's group in Belgium, where they put the cyclists through three weeks of training and they were given ketones, proteins and carbs after the exercise and before they go to bed. So half an hour, within half an hour after exercise and half an hour before bed. And after three weeks, they saw an increase in work output of uh, 15% on top of sort of uh, increase in calorie intake as well, which is very interesting because another study shows that exogenous ketones can actually suppress appetite. But Yeah, that was I, I was confused about that because I had seen yeah. that study and I was going to ask you one group, the group that overperformed took in more yeah. calories, yep. which was interesting because I had read its effects on Grenlin as an appetite yeah. suppressor. Correct. Correct. Um, now, it makes sense that you get the improvement. I mean, 15% of work output is a lot. And if you're not eating more, then where are you getting the energy from? Then, then we'll probably have more questions than we have answers, right? But what I see ketone as is um, ketone is an adaptive substrate where it depends on the stimulus you put your body through and then your body adapts to it better. 
So because these people are training so rigorously and going through this whole process of training and resting and nutrition, it almost signals the body to adapt it better because we know that after exercise, when they looked at it in, in vitro, they saw a increase in um, leucine-mediated mTOR activation, which is protein synthesis increase. So, But then you have to do it after exercise and you have to give protein on top of that because amino acid is still the building blocks for proteins. And therefore, you need to have all the elements, all the components in place in order to really push that response towards recovery, for example. And with ghrelin, I, you know, they are at rest. So they're not doing anything and, and therefore they are, you know, they don't need to use that much energy and therefore, you know, you get appetite suppression. So I think there's another study that showed that, okay, ketones in general, you know, especially with longevity studies and with chronic diseases, they say ketones have anti-inflammatory, antioxidant properties. And then one study, they, they isolated, you know, sort of in vitro and when toxins from bacteria has been added to the culture uh, with ketones, they saw an increase in inflammatory um, response. So people are like, why does ketone increase inflammatory response when they're supposed to be anti-inflammatory? But the key here is the addition of of the toxin as a foreign um, invader, if you would, um, as something that you need inflammatory response. Because you know, that's what our bodies do, right? We upregulate inflammatory response when there is an infection, when there is, you know, virus, bacteria, toxin, whatever. And that is exactly what our bodies want. So that was what sort of kickstarted my thought around ketones being an adaptive fuel. It does not only provide you energy, but it somehow provides some form of signaling that really adapts to the stimulus um, that you're providing uh, to your body or to the organs that you are focusing on. But and to circle that one back to just round out that point. Yeah. I mentioned at the start there's not a lot of studies that I see in show you're forced across the line. But I interestingly talked to a prominent world tour physiologist and the motivations for studies are different to uh, that might, something that might go on PubMed versus something that'll be conducted internally. PubMed we cared about a hundred subjects went through this protocol and here's the results. Yumbo Visma care about 100 people went through it. How does it affect Primos Roglic? They don't care if it doesn't affect 90 other people. They only care about the effect on that one rider. So it, they look for different conclusions and they draw different conclusions. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, they, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, all of these studies, ultimately, they're also driven by funding, right? Like what... Yes, we are, we are, we're definitely investigating and discovering new science, discovering new mechanism. But ultimately, like what is also, you know, we also need to really think, as scientists, we need to think about how is this applicable to the public? How is this knowledge being translated into the public? So, and both sides have their pros and cons, right? Like this 100 people go through this protocol. We know that, you know, majority of the population, especially if, if these athletes are more, you know, their statistics, uh, their, their biostats, their biomarkers are, are more closely related to the general population, then we know that we can then apply this protocol to the general public. Um, whereas this other ones is like, you know, who has the most, you know, superb genetics, superb, you know, adaptation to exogenous ketone to perform at the top 0.01%. And that is also applicable, but to a less certain number of people, but nonetheless, we can show that that is there is the science behind it. 
But that's an interesting one, yeah. This this application to in, into the kind of like the public realm, as it were. You know, as we know, you can't just I can't just sit here and drink protein shakes and grow incredible Popeye like biceps. I have to activate that protein. I have to do something with it. Otherwise, I could strangely sit here drinking this, you know, protein health dietary supplement and actually become fat, right? So my lifestyle has a massive effect on everything that's going into my lifestyle, if you like. So what kinds of studies and thinking um, is there for the everyman? As Anthony and I have, have talked about, because Anthony's been trying a bit of ketones, if he goes out and has six pints, in the morning, he is, I cease to believe that he can take a 25-gram shot of ketones and suddenly ride, <laughs> you know, ride his highest you know, ride threshold for an hour. So what are the ramifications for your actual life? Or, or more to the point, what do you need to be doing in the rest of your life for ketones to work? And what kinds of studies have there been undertaken to kind of prove that out? Okay, so I think there are a couple of points here to, to address. Let's, you know, let's go back to the spectrum, right? One is the chronic disease end and the other is the performance end. And I'll talk on both as well. Um, let's start with the performance end. Obviously, the performance end depends on what goal you're trying to achieve, right? If you're trying to achieve over time building endurance, you've got to train for that and then really introduce the nutrition to back that up. And that's where ketone comes in. And if ketones help with your recovery, that means every day you can you know, push further because you're recovering better. And then over time, it compounds. Same thing if you are planning to, you know, lift more weight and and really, you know, pushing the boundaries on on, on weightlifting or on high intensity exercises, um, ketones may help with the recovery more than the actual um, high intensity workout. However, some anecdotal uh, some anecdotal um, examples have said that they experience that mental focus that they are in the zone of really pushing that explosive energy out after taking in ketones, even though metabolically, we know that that doesn't directly um, increase the energy output, um, at least for the short amount of time. And then on the other end, which is a chronic disease end, if you are overweight, if you're at the high risk, if you're pre-diabetic, you're high risk of getting diabetes, you know, you want to pair the glucose lowering effect of ketones with a healthier lifestyle, right? Not have as much um, carbs as possible, not have excessive calories to really, you know, make sure that you are not gaining weight, but most importantly, having an active lifestyle to increase the insulin sensitivity of your muscles. Because you can lower your blood glucose all you want, but if your muscles are still insulin resistant, you are still not taking in that, that glucose. And that damage of elevated insulin is already done and you need to somehow increase insulin sensitivity in order to reverse that damage. And, and active uh, physical activity has been shown as one of the, the most powerful um, intervention to increase insulin sensitivity and not drugs. So having said that, you know, you can lower, you can sort of do a multi-pronged approach here where you, you know, decrease your glucose intake so that would decrease your glucose, obviously. But then having ketones also decrease your blood glucose in general to circulating your body. And then that will have effect on your insulin. But then when you increase your exercise, you're also increasing insulin sensitivity. Now, whatever um, glucose you have in your body, you can actually pull them into your muscles, use them for energy, use them efficiently. And that will create a much healthier um, 
environment within your body in order to achieve health and fitness. I'm with I'm I'm with you. I'm definitely with you. I'm going on that journey, but there is this gnawing cynic in me yeah. that sort of thinks how honestly useful is it for the average person, particularly as we've kind of identified at the beginning. I think we have anyway, because again, you're the expert. You tell me if I'm right or wrong. That you, we can kind of go into a kind of um, a state of ketosis through diet. So we can realize those fatty acids into ketones, which we which can then you know pass through into our brain and fuel our brain, and pass through into our muscles and fuel our muscles just by our diet. So there's just that little bit of me that yeah, kind of wants to go back to primordial mankind, humankind, and just go. Let's get back to basics, yeah. and let's just do this thing through diet. What would you kind of say to that? That's absolutely correct. And that's absolutely valid. So the way I tell people is that I don't care what way you use to get into ketosis. Lowering blood glucose, lowering blood insulin so that you don't get that chronic inflammatory response is the key here. Now, the key here is not about what way you use to get into ketosis. It's what is the most consistent, persistent way where you can stay in ketosis, where you can lower your blood glucose. If you feel like ketogenic lifestyle or intermittent fasting is the most consistent way for you to live a healthy lifestyle while achieving your goals, then by all means, achieve that, right? If you feel like you have a family and your kids don't want to go on a ketogenic lifestyle, you have to cook for the family and to make it more sustainable, you need that sort of extra supplementation. I always tell people, you know, first and foremost, your lifestyle and nutrition first, and then supplementation comes in. Same thing with ketones, right? You take it as, you know, proteins, as, as you know, carbs, as, you know, same thing with working out, right? We are taking whey protein powders, not because that particularly helps with um, the muscle building. It's because we can't get enough protein in our normal meals and therefore we have supplementation. So here is the same, right? If you find yourself struggling with keeping a sustainable ketogenic diet or you're struggling to, to fast or you feel that you want the dual hybrid fuel system for performance where you have access to glycogen as well as ketones, then that's where ketone supplementation comes in. And let to finish up uh, in a hypothetical situation that our listeners have taken the plunge, they've bought the ketones. What's the protocol? Is there a standardized protocol for taking the ketones or does it need to be a totally tailored based on their individual circumstances? So what we have come up with, so a lot of studies are weight matched. So if you're really scientific about it and you want to go really nitty gritty on it, um, then it's 0.3 to 0.5 gram per kilogram of body weight, half an hour before workout, and you top up half of that 90 minutes after you start to work out. What we have come up with um, just recently, actually, um, as a team is to make things much easier for people to follow is to take ketones about three to one sort of ratio to your carbs. So three, three carbs, one three grams of carbs to one gram of ketones um, half an hour before uh, your workout or before your workout and then top it up um, about 90 minutes after. So that would generally keep you in ketosis and also be able to make sure that your ketone levels are not too low, that you still get the benefit. But I would say definitely go out there, um, try it for yourself because some people with a, because all these studies are body weight matched, right? So if you are a bigger person, um, you probably would need a higher dose. 
Um, and you know, some people prefer to prick the finger and, and have a blood test of their blood BHB. They want to reach between 1.5 to 2 um, before, before they start exercising. Uh, some people, they don't. They just go by the feel. And once they feel good, um, they know they're good to go. So I think there are many ways to, to figure this out, but the three to one is a very general guideline to go with. Cool. And I've just got one more question. What happened to DARPA's experimental soldiers? Um, they're still going. Um, I am actually the principal investigator for <laughs> a $6 million grant um, given by the Special Operators Command uh, in the US. We're wrapping up all the studies, hopefully, uh, end of January. Uh, we have you know six, seven tasks out there. We're looking at... Um, hypoxia, specifically cognition and physical performance. And we make them do, I probably can't say much, but we make them do like, you know, cognitive tests and uh, make them exercise in hypoxic chamber and looking at how much, uh, how much ketones impact them uh, in terms of those, those parameters and, and biomarkers. So hopefully we'll be publishing it soon. Um, our phase one has already been published. We saw that in hypoxia because our brain is so energy hungry that when you are in hypoxia your your cognition really drops significantly what we have seen in the phase one right now is the phase two so phase one is that when you give them ketones the drop in cognition actually got mitigated and this sort of flatline um so they didn't get increase in cognition but they definitely maintain their cognitive abilities um even though in the in the space of hypoxia so it's like hypoxia is is effectively a lack of oxygen. Do you mean lack of that, oxygen? Yeah. With, so it, does that extend to you know? In, so you're talking being in a hypoxic chamber. That's effectively a bit like exercising altitude. Would ketones have an application for mountain climbers? Say yes. So that is exactly what it is. So for military, it would be combat at high altitude, right? Um, and if you think about it, we are intermittently putting our bodies through hypoxia as well when we exercise, even if we are not exercising at altitude. Obviously, at altitude, we'll have a bigger exposure to hypoxia. But in general, when you exercise, you, we are you know, putting our body through hypoxia, putting our muscles through hypoxia. Um, and a lot of um, people now have used it for uh, mountain climbing, for, for hiking, and they, and they find themselves to be to feel better in terms of adapting to the hypoxic uh, environment and, and in general, like not feeling that, that sort of uh, altitude sickness. We, in the study, we have seen an increase in oxygen saturation in the blood up to 7%, which is huge because if you think about it at baseline, we are looking at about 98 to 100 you know, um, oxygen saturation. But then in hypoxia, in, in a simulated 20,000 feet um, altitude, we are looking at about 65%. So a huge drop. But then in the ketone group, we're we seeing about 72% um, oxygen saturation. So you can imagine the access to the amount of oxygen that your, your body is able to grasp will have effect on, on all the functions, on the, all the bodily functions uh, of different organs, your heart, your brain, your muscles. Um, and that will have a huge effect when uh, you're putting it in terms of performance outcome, especially in the perspective of a soldier. Yeah, and also in the perspective of a cyclist. And this, I know, I know, we said, you know, we're just about to wrap this up, but I just this led me down a really interesting thought path, which is the idea that you can saturate your blood with more oxygen has been critical to the doping programs of of cyclists for decades. So, is there therefore a danger that you know this amazing thing is about to become illegal because of its that one specific effect? If you can effectively oversaturate your blood compared to your competitor. 
the, I, I was asked that question once. I, I'm not going to lie because blood doping is a thing and it is illegal and it's essentially you know taking your blood out and then putting it back in with increased oxygen uh, capacity. This, I don't think, will be significant enough to be illegal, especially when it is essentially a food product. And we have seen that, yes, in, in 20,000 feet, but that is a very, very severe hypoxic environment. Like, I don't think in, in an everyday use, you're going to get into that sort of hypoxic environment within minutes. We're talking about within minutes. We, because it's a chamber, they're already in hypoxia. They go in and this is within 20 minutes. So, so that environment is not very ecological, but we want to see the science and therefore we put them straight in. Because normally you would have an adaptation period as you move up anyway to move up the altitude. So I don't think this is the same. This is similar, but not the same as, as say, blood doping. Um, and I don't think it will be an issue. Dr. Lad, I'm sure it's an area that's going to keep evolving over the coming years. So we're going to keep an eye on it. Uh, thanks for joining us on Cyclist Magazine podcast. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. It has been a really uh, great conversation. Thanks so much. James, that was enlightening, confusing, educational, and a little bit scary all in one go. I don't know how to feel about that conversation. Uh, I'm, I'm, yeah, the top of my Laszlo's hierarchy of needs, confusion reigns supreme right at the top of that pyramid. <laughs> um, but no, the, the, the thing that sticks out to me about ketones um, and the kind of research that I've read around it as well, because it just pops up in other areas um, of cycling journalism, is that whatever you think about ketones as a supplement, the concept of ketones being a fuel source and the way that fat is kind of metabolized is the wrong word, but kind of changes into something else. Science does agree on. So there is that. So it's not just like some weird snake oil where someone goes, well, you know, what is that? Oh, it just does this thing. Does it? Where's that come from? It has legitimacy in as much as there is a parallel that is going on presumably right within, you know, me right now and you. But my jury is, yeah, is is always out, I think, with any kind of supplement that promises to kind of sharpen up already very sharp skills, because that's what ketones is, is saying it does in terms of sports performance, or at least that's how we understand it in cycling. And I kind of think, yeah, coming back to your point that you raised um, in the interview, it's got to go hand in hand with other parts of diet, because otherwise it's just going to probably be relatively ineffectual. But at the same time, Dr. Latt did say there's lots of other elements to it too, you know, in terms of its treatment of things like diabetes and prevention. And, and so, yeah, there's a lot of work to be done, but it's really interesting stuff. But I don't know, what, what do you make of it? You've tried it, right? Well, yeah, I have. Well, I carried into the interview that bias that you mentioned there saying, okay, if I am having a, you know, a chicken curry on a Tuesday evening, I'm having these on a Wednesday morning, surely that's not doing me any good. If my life isn't optimized to the nth degree in every other aspect of my life, these supplements can't possibly work. And I carried that bias into the interview. And as the interview went on, and I listened to Dr. Latmore, I thought, you know, what's that saying? I think it was Mark Twain. It's not what we don't know that hurts us. It's what we know for sure that just isn't so. And I was like, okay, maybe this bias I've carried into the interview just isn't true. Because if I look at other areas of my life, and I even think about, you know, clients that I've worked with in the past, they carry that same prejudice or bias into other areas saying, oh, well, um, I was late at, I was up late drinking last night, so it didn't make sense for me to do my session. It's like, well, it did make sense for you to do your session. Maybe you wouldn't have got the exact same benefit as if you were in bed at 10 o'clock because you stayed up till 2 a.m. drinking, but there still is a benefit. 
And I came away wondering the same with ketones. Does my life need to be optimized to the nth degree to get a benefit out of these? Or is it just to get an optimum benefit out of them that my life needs to be optimized? That I can still take these ketones because I've started experimenting them now. And you know, anecdotally, it's it's difficult to know what difference they're making right now. Maybe it's something more to monitor over the long term, but I've softened on that biased position I came into the interview with. Yeah, no, yeah, definitely, definitely good points. And I know, I know what you mean about that feeling, particularly pervasive amongst cyclists, which is I like what I know and I know what I like. And <laughs> to check, to deviate from that is, is is like totally against the fabric of being a cyclist, isn't it? Um, and yeah, just because something isn't going to have like absolute maximal gains, if it has any kind of gain, that's good. And also, you know, like we talked about at the beginning, that kind of like habit stacking thing where it's just maybe part of a larger kind of ecosystem where you're just treating your body and your life in a different kind of way where you're looking at it as something that, that you can have an effect on on a daily basis and that could just be part of it. So, yeah, I mean, I'd never dismiss anything out of hand at all. And there's a, And there is just, I mean, the other thing is there is just an overwhelming not body of evidence, but anecdotal, experiential kind of driven anecdotal evidence. <laughs> so it is evidence, <laughs> but in, you know, of, of, of pro teams using it to the point where there is also, a, there's the, there's that, I can't remember the name of it, that um, kind of like in-house group of the lobby of cyclists who are kind of like attempting to keep cycling at the world to a level um, kind of fair. So it's like kind of cycling's own policing with its own WADA and USADA style rules. Interestingly, uh, Quintana was a member <laughs> at a certain point <laughs> in time, and they and they have they have a kind of pledge not to use ketones because which says to me that they see you know professionals see something in it. So yeah, it's um I'd like yeah let's come back to that in in a year's time and also to the soldiers didn't actually tell us what the soldiers are up to. I kind of feel like if the US is investing millions of pounds in this sort of stuff um, to create super soldiers, then it's probably you know there's probably something to it, isn't there? So if I'm stopped on my electric e-bike through the streets of London, I will claim that I'm not actually furiously, frantically cycling or whatever your term was. I will claim I'm just charged up on ketone IQ. That's my defense. <laughs> and that will work. Righty, mate. On that note, it has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, once again, you need to go off and take some more ketones. I need to go and change my socks and my jeans uh, and have another <laughs> cup of coffee. Thanks for chatting, folks. We'll be back next week. This episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by HVMN's Ketone IQ.